So I didn't have a Christmas-specific a Christmas sermon this morning, but um, I do have a sermon that talks about what Christ did, so I guess in a sense that might still be considered a Christmas sermon. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. If you have your Bibles along, I invite you to turn there with me this morning. Chapter 2 in Colossians, verses 11 to 15. So let's read, starting at verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And Paul deals with salvation metaphorically here in Colossians because the false teachers that were plaguing the church there, they were doing their best to add what Christ did, and they were doing their best to add to who Christ was. Just as we as believers are sometimes prone to do. They didn't necessarily deny what Christ did, but they were adding to Christ's work. And as Christians, we too often live as though we don't believe that the work of Christ was enough. If someone asked, hey, do you believe the work of Christ was enough? We would readily agree that yes, it was. But often, we don't live that way. Sometimes we struggle with assurance. We ask for forgiveness after we sin, but we still struggle with guilt. We read the Bible or do our devotions not to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but we do it because we think God will be disappointed or displeased with us if we don't. Not only is that untrue, it is completely the wrong motivation. And yet the Bible actually paints a very different story. The Bible paints a story of a salvation that is complete and that there is nothing that can be added to make it better. A salvation that was, that was made complete by a Savior who is complete. A Savior who is God Himself, the firstborn of all creation, who is over all rulers, dominions, and authorities, who created all rulers, dominions, and authorities, who is the head of the church, and in whom the fullness of God dwells, in whom all wisdom and knowledge is found, and who made peace by the blood of the cross in order to reconcile sinners to Himself. A complete salvation made complete by a Savior who is complete. Let's take a quick look at the book of Hebrews just to give us a little bit of insight into some of the work that Jesus did to make a way for sinners to be reconciled. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. You turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. And note the constant once and for all language that the writer of Hebrews uses. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. 
For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So here we have a brief description of the temple and its rituals before Christ. The temple had two main sections. It had the first part, the holy place, and the second part, which was called the holy of holies. In the first section, the priest and the high priest, sorry, in the first section, the high priest, the priest would regularly go into to perform their rituals and their duties. But in the second section, only the high priest was allowed to enter, enter once a year and not without blood to atone for sins. And the author of Hebrews in this section is describing how Jesus is the better high priest. You see, just as we read that the way into the holy place is not open as long as the first section is standing, these priests, they could only deal with rituals, regulations, washings, and so on, and they could not actually cleanse the conscience. A better way had to be made, a better way had to be found. And the veil between the two sections kept the people from God's presence, and they were confined to mere rituals through priests as mediators. So keeping your finger there, let's quickly turn to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 50. Matthew 27, and starting in verse 50. And we'll see that Christ is the better high priest, because he made a way for all to have access to God into the second part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Starting in verse 50, Matthew 27, And Jesus cried out with, again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So this veil separating the holy place, the first section, from the Holy of Holies, the second section, was torn by Christ's blood sacrifice. And Christ was the greater high priest because he truly was a fullness of God himself. And his blood was enough to pay for our sins once and for all. It is no longer necessary for the priest to enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of people every year. By Christ's death, the veil split, giving mankind access into God's presence through Jesus on his de- through his death on the cross. Now, let's go back to Hebrews now again, Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This redemption wasn't almost made. It wasn't almost secured. It wasn't temporarily secured. It wasn't maybe secured. Christ's blood was enough to eternally secure this redemption for his people. In Hebrews chapter 9, let's go down to verse 22 now. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And skipping down to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after seeing, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You know, I love verse 14, that by a single offering, not many, not repeatedly, but a single offering, he has perfected, not only made better, but perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So even though God continually and mercifully works in our life to sanctify us and to make us more like Jesus Christ, we have already been perfected in a spiritual sense by receiving a circumcision made without hands, as we read in Colossians. And this is what Paul is explaining in Colossians. He's explaining that their salvation really is complete in the fullness of God and what Christ did. Everything Christ did was always complete. Imagine if his healing the sick were only partial healings, or if Christ only partially fulfilled uh, prophecy. It would prove that he really wasn't the Christ at all. And in the same way, if salvation truly wasn't complete, then that would prove that he really wasn't the Christ. The false teachers in Colossae wanted to add some of these things back into into the worship of Christ some of these rituals that Hebrews speaks of, as if Christ really wasn't enough. But Paul is saying, no, do not listen, for it will only bring you back into bondage. So this morning I want to show you how our salvation has been fully accomplished. I want to show you how our forgiveness has been fully accomplished. And third, how our victory has been accomplished. So in Colossians chapter 2, first in verses 11 and 12, we see an accomplished salvation. 
And it is very important to understand how Paul has up to this point in the book of Colossians very persuasively argued the deity and the majesty and the power and the person of Jesus Christ. Why? In order to convince the readers that their salvation truly is complete. Anyone less than Christ would not have been enough to accomplish full and complete salvation. But Christ really isn't like anyone else. He is truly God in the flesh. He holds the power of the universe in his hands. He created the universe with his breath. He is perfect in all his ways. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Now notice the first two words in verse 11 in the ESV. It says, in him, in the Christ, in this Christ whom I have been telling you about. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. And he repeats himself a little bit differently, by the circumcision of Christ. Now what exactly does Paul mean by the circumcision of Christ? Or by in him you were circumcised. And I think most of us think of circumcision merely as a physical act made by hands of the old covenant for male children. But what was the purpose of circumcision, even in the Old Testament? Circumcision was a sign of membership in the Old Covenant as a people set apart for God. But set apart how? Simply by removing a small part of the physical body? Not really. Circumcision actually had a deeper meaning. It stood for something. So what might that deeper meaning be? Well, mankind needed his heart to be cleansed from sin. And circumcision symbolized man's need to cut off sin from the heart. So let's go back to the Old Testament for a bit. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Starting in verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Now let's flip to the right a little ways to Deuteronomy chapter 3, or uh, 30, I mean, chapter, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And again, in Jeremiah 4.4, 4, it says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart. O men of Judah and inhabitants of, it, uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And back to the New Testament again in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verse 11. Speaking of, of Abraham, who was spiritually circumcised before he was even physically circumcised. In Romans 4, 11, he received the sign of, the circumc- the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So if Abraham was saved by faith before he was circumcised, as this passage describes, 
then circumcision could never save in the first place. And circumcision of the flesh in the Old Testament symbolized God's people being different from the rest of the world by desiring to follow Him. And in each of these verses, God is calling His people to have a repentant heart. It symbolizes the fact that God's people were supposed to be separate from the world. God's people were supposed to cut off sin from their hearts. Cutting off the flesh symbolized cutting off sin and rebellion to God and having a pure heart towards God. They were to put off the old and put on the new. But under the old covenant, they were to put off the old and put on the new by following God through perfectly obeying God's law. Which is why a better way had to be made. Because mankind is utterly incapable of cutting off sin from their hearts by themselves, by following the law. Still in Romans, let's look at Romans 2, verse 25. Romans 2, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So we see even in the Old Testament how circumcision was a matter of the heart. And this is why Paul now uses circumcision to symbolize in Colossians the new birth. He says the new birth is a circumcision made without hands. It is a spiritual circumcision performed by Christ when he saves us, where he removes our heart of stone. He removes our sin. He removes the wickedness of our hearts and breathes a new life into us. The old has been cut off and it has been put off and we have been made new. The circumcision of Christ has put off the body of flesh. In fact, in chapter 3 of Colossians, we read that we are to put off to put to death our sin and put to death our old ways, the earthly things. Now, why, when we just read that Christ has cut off our sin in a spiritual circumcision, does Paul tell us that we should now put it to death? Well, the reason is because, because Christ has cut it off. Because he has put it off from us spiritually, then we must no longer allow these sins to well up in our flesh. These are the very things that Christ has cut off. Therefore, we should not be given to, be, to putting them back on. Paul continues then in Colossians 2.12 to baptism. And just as circumcision doesn't save, baptism in itself doesn't save. They are both symbolizing spiritual realities. 2.12 reads, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So just as the foreskin was removed in physical circumcision, so the old flesh is removed in a spiritual circumcision. And when the flesh has been removed from the body, it dies. And when Christ saves, the old self dies in a spiritual circumcision. And Paul now likens this to baptism and switches to using baptism to symbolize this new birth. This old self 
which has, been, which has died by being cut off, is now buried. This old self is dead. It is removed and it is gone. And if you look back at Colossians 2.11, notice that Paul is specifically talking about a spiritual circumcision when he mentions the phrase made without hands. So the proper view in context here is that Paul is now also not speaking of a physical baptism or water baptism, but the spiritual baptism. Water baptism symbolizes that spiritual reality. And in baptism, the new believer is lowered into the water He is immersed under the water, symbolizing a burial of the old self. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, we read, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were buried into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So then, being buried in baptism, we are raised up out of the spiritual grave, symbolized by water, and into a newness of life. So it is God who raises us from the dead. He has removed our old ways, and we were buried with Christ. If we are then also raised from spiritual death, by the same power that raised Christ, then our salvation truly is fully accomplished. A dead person is unable to raise himself or to lend any aid to being raised from the dead. Therefore, since it relies not on anything we have done or anything that we can do, it means our salvation must be complete. And that's what Paul is saying. It was Christ himself who has circumcised our hearts and has raised us up. Looking back at Colossians 2, 11 to 12, and having just argued that both circumcision and baptism are spiritual realities, and the physical act doesn't save, Paul now describes how these spiritual realities come to be. And they're through the faith in the, they're through faith in the powerful working of God who raises us from the dead, who raises from the dead. Even this faith that raises us This faith is a gift from God, which all the more means our salvation has truly been accomplished. That must be accomplished then. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Some versions say the author of our faith. Our faith is a gift from Christ itself. And all those who believe in faith that God raised Jesus from the dead will be raised with Christ in glory. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9, or Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans 10, verse 9. All those who believe in faith that God raised Jesus from the dead will be raised with Christ. Because Romans 10, 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So having looked at how salvation is an accomplished reality, not through rituals or anything made with hands, but through Christ who saves, apart from anything we can offer, let's look next at verses 13 and 14 in Colossians. And we see that we have an accomplished forgiveness. Verse 13 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The reason we need to be spiritually buried with Christ is because we are spiritually dead. Our flesh was still uncircumcised before our salvation. And Paul isn't speaking of two different things when he says that we were dead in sin and that our flesh was uncircumcised. These are the same thing articulated differently. Paul is repeating himself. Before salvation, we are dead and we are unable to please God because our sinful flesh has not yet been cut off. And we see that especially when we look at passages in Scripture like Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. To be dead means that we love our sins and we love to live in our sins. We follow after the world and after Satan. We fulfill the passions of our flesh and carry out the desires of our body and the desires of our minds. And we do exactly what we want in our own personal freedom of choices because without what we want to do is to reject God and embrace wickedness. And because of that, we are under the wrath of God. Now keep your finger there and let's turn to Romans chapter, Romans chapter 3. And we'll go back to Ephesians chapter 2 actually. But let's go to Romans chapter 3, and here we see a further description of someone who is dead in sin. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And here we see a neat list of someone who is dead in sin, as we all once were. A dead person isn't righteous. A dead person doesn't understand. A dead person doesn't seek for God. No one seeks for God. And all have turned from God. No one does good. Mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Tongues are used to deceive and feet are swift to shed blood. And perhaps the most fearful of all, they do not know peace and there is no fear of God before their eyes. This, brothers and sisters, is the condition of one who is dead in their sins, unable to come to God, not because anything prevents them to come, but because everyone before conversion of their own pre-personal freedom refuses to seek after God. And it's what the Bible tells us. Now, it may seem hopeless, but it isn't. So how then are we able to come to God? John 6.44 holds the answer. John 6.44, Jesus says, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will 
raise him up on the last day. So everyone who the Father draws will be raised up. You see, God could have left us in our sin. He could have left us to our own choices. But had he done that, then no one would be saved because the Bible says that all have turned aside and no one seeks after him. And I think every Christian believes this truth to some extent. And we see it in Christian prayers. When we pray for someone's salvation, no one ever prays that God would just leave that person alone and allow that person to come to him out of himself. Of course not. We always, we always pray to God for God to intervene in that person's life and help them to come to him. We pray as though we believe exactly what Jesus is saying in John 6.44, that no one can come unless the Father draws, unless the Father intervenes. And God will use our prayers as means of accomplishing this. Never cease to pray for the salvation of your loved ones. God is a merciful and He is a loving God. And if we page back to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll see that. Let's, let's read Ephesians chapter 2 again. Let's read it together starting in verse 1 again. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, isn't that just a wonderful phrase right there? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow, when we were dead in our sins... God was rich in mercy. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us, God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, continuing on in Romans 5, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then five, Romans 5 verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we, be, shall we be saved by his life. So is God calling you today? Cry out to him. Believe that he died and rose again for your sins in which you walk. And the Bible promises in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And again in Romans 10.13, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God uses the hearing of the gospel to draw sinners to himself for the forgiveness of sins. And as we see in the next verse in Romans 10.14, how then, can, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe if they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And this is why we preach the gospel every Sunday morning at Grace Bible Fellowship, because how can someone believe if they have never heard? And we hope and pray that if there is someone in our midst or someone who hears online who has never maybe heard the gospel, that they will hear and that they will be saved. So looking again, looking again at Colossians, we were dead in our sins and we were made alive by God through a spiritual circumcision. God removed the sinful flesh because we were dead in our sins. We were spiritually buried with Christ in baptism. And because God and his great mercy made us alive through faith and the forgiveness of sins. And therefore we have been raised up spiritually from the dead with Christ in the powerful working of God who has also raised Christ from the dead. Our sins have been put off and they have been forgiven. They no longer hold power over us because it is Christ himself who accomplished it apart from anything that we could do. And this is why it is important to fully understand what it means to be dead in sin in order to appreciate and fully understand how the forgiveness of Christ is fully and truly accomplished. The psalmist writes in chapter 32, verse 1, he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sins are covered. Again, Paul has built a foundation of Jesus Christ in the book of Colossians to get to this point. And the point now is that if Christ is the things that Paul says he is, then forgiveness in Christ truly is and it truly must be complete. Brothers and sisters, not only is it complete, but it is eagerly given by God. Forgiveness is eagerly given by God. God himself says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that rather the wicked men should turn from their ways and live. In Psalm 86, verse 5, we read that the Lord is good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon Him. You see, there is nothing the Colossian people could do to improve upon Christ's full forgiveness. Just as there is still nothing that we can do to improve what Christ has done. Because a record of debt against you has been canceled. It has been removed by nailing it to the cross. And Paul illustrates God's forgiveness here. And he explains it in a way that the Colossians would have readily understood it. He says, the record of debt, you see, the record of debt was a handwritten note in the Bible times used as a certificate of indebtedness. So if I owed something to someone, then I would receive a written note describing how much I owe to that person and for what. And in this case, there is a record of debt with legal demands. In other words, there is a record of debt between God and man. And every person born is born with this record of debt. And it has this, and they have this record of debt against them for breaking God's holy law because the Bible says in Galatians 3.10, if we break one part of the law, then we are guilty of breaking all of it. And circumcision is of no avail if anyone broke any other part of the law. This debt is hostile to us because it is unpayable. There is nothing you can ever do to begin to pay this debt that you owe God. When you lie, when you cheat, when you steal, when you covet, when you are unjustly angry or selfish, 
All your sins are a written, a written record against a holy and righteous God. But God, the good news, the good news is that God sent Jesus Christ to this world to live a perfect life. And he was not guilty of breaking even one part of the law. And this is why he was able to pay that debt. That when we put our trust in him, then Christ pays that debt. That is when God takes this written record of an unpayable debt that you owe him and cancels it. The word cancel here means to blot out. It means to delete it, to erase it, and to destroy it. It is completely done away with once and for all, as we read in the book of Hebrews. By taking that note and nailing it to the cross of Christ where his blood was spilled on our behalf, it is completely done away with. And Paul's metaphor here of a note nailed to the cross plays beautifully on the Roman practice of nailing to the cross the charges of an execution. And they would write the crimes of the person being executed on a sign and they would nail it to the cross to publicly show what this person is being punished for. And you may remember that Jesus' sign said, the king of the Jews. And it was a practice that the Romans had, as they would nail the crime of the person to the cross. What a beautiful illustration that is. Paul is saying, your sins, your crimes were written on a note and they were nailed to the cross of Christ and he died for your crimes. In a legal sense, we should have died. But he died for your crimes. He died for our sins and they were nailed there to his cross. This is what we remember when we take the Lord's Supper. How this note of legal demands has been taken away from us and how we are free. Imagine the gratitude you would feel if someone came in and paid off your mortgage. And yet we should, we should be infinitely more grateful because of what Jesus did for on the cross for us. Because of it, it is of infinitely more value. There is no trace of debt left owing to God because our forgiveness truly is complete. And a truly accomplished salvation And a truly accomplished forgiveness also does mean, and our third point here, an accomplished victory. That we do, as Christians, have an accomplished victory and that we can live in victory. We have seen how salvation is fully accomplished and how forgiveness is fully accomplished. And we'll have a brief brief look now at how once forgiveness and salvation are accomplished, how a victorious life for the believer has also been accomplished. Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, how before salvation we all once walked according to the world and we walked after the prince of the power of the air. We all walked after Satan, willfully rejecting God. Notice how often Paul mentions the spiritual world in Colossians. The false teachers there must have been attempting to convince the people of some deeper spiritual knowledge of demons and angels. And Paul reminds them again and again that true spiritual knowledge and wisdom comes only from Jesus Christ. 
So many believers, even today, still have this false sense that they are somehow in bondage to Satan and his minions. This is entirely false. As Christians, we do fight a spiritual battle. But this is a battle for the truth of God's word. It is a battle to defeat the enemy's lies. He is the father of lies, but he cannot make a Christian sin. He can tempt a believer by dangling a desirable sin in front of our noses, hoping we'll take it. But he cannot force us to take it. Let's follow Paul's thread on this topic through the book of Colossians. Remembering again that the false teachers were saying that there is a deeper spiritual knowledge to be had. And something that we even see prevalent today within some exorcism type of ministries. Let's go turn back to Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. And we'll follow this thread through Colossians. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with a knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul starts off with there with the spiritual wisdom and understanding is only found in Christ. Let's go down to verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Down to verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Colossians 2, verses 2 to 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 2, verse 8. See to it, then, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and Him. 2.18 Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Some translations might refer there to things unseen, the demonic realm puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Colossians 2, verse 20. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And we'll stop there. So we can see here how much emphasis the false teachers must have put on the spiritual realm. But as Christians, we have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. And since with Christ we have died, and with Christ we have been raised up, then we too are triumphant over these authorities. Not because of anything that we did, but because of Christ, and because of what Christ is. And because He is worthy, and because He is the complete Savior. Notice how Colossians 1.13 says that we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son. And if we are in the kingdom of the Son, how can Satan hold power over us? We all sin. We all have our struggles. But these truths remind us that our salvation in Christ, our forgiveness in Christ, our victory in Christ isn't partial. It is truly complete. We do have victory 
which was fully accomplished. But as people, we still sometimes live, sorry, as people, we still live in an unredeemed body. And sometimes we give in to our sinful desires and attempt to gratify our sinful flesh, even after Christ removes it in a spiritual circumcision. But since the old is removed, these sins become revolting to us because we are a new creation. But the wonderful truth in all of this is that even if we do fall into sin, if you are a true born-again believer, then your salvation still is complete. Your forgiveness still is complete. No matter how horrible the things are that you have done in the past, your forgiveness is complete because it was the preeminent Christ who paid for those sins. Our salvation, our forgiveness, and our victory isn't dependent on what we do or how we feel. It is dependent on something much higher than us, much greater than us. It is dependent upon the promises, the unfailing and unending promises of a holy God in the Scriptures. By grace, you have been saved. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning. I thank you again for your word. I thank you for your unfailing promises. Christ, how it is you who has cut off our body of flesh in a spiritual circumcision. You have made us a new creation. You have breathed into us a new life. Thank you, God, for your grace that you looked upon us while we were still sinners. And you bestowed your grace upon us and you showed us mercy. And through the gospel of your word and through faith, you have raised us again to a new life. Thank you, Jesus. Praise in your name. Amen.